Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name's Robert Lamb. On today's episode, I chat with distinguished theoretical physicist and a professor of natural philosophy, physics, and astronomy at Dartmouth College, Marcelo Gleiser, the first Latin American recipient of the Templeton Prize. His new book is The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, a Manifesto for Humanity's Future, out now in all formats. And it's just a tremendous read to kick off a new year with optimism and determination about our relationship to the planet. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Hi, Marcelo. Welcome to the show. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. The new book is The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, out now in all formats. Uh, You stress that this is not another doom book about the dire trajectory of human civilization. You point out that particularly with the existential crisis of climate change, scare tactics don't seem to work. What is it about humans that make us so resistant to change when confronted with problems like climate change? Yeah, so I think what makes climate change different is that you don't see the eminent danger in front of your face. You know, it's not sort of like the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor, we got to mobilize and, and fight back kind of thing. You know, it's it's sort of like this slow, slowly encroaching thing. And we tend to not push back whenever we don't feel this kind of, oh my God, you know, the world is about to end kind of thing. And so there is a disconnect between what people keep saying, look, global warming is real, it's happening, you know, it's it's affecting all of us. I, for example, I live in northern New England and it's late December here and there is no snow, right? And there should be two feet of snow out there. And it's like, oh, it's El Nino, it's normal. It's not really normal. You know, this is the hottest year ever recorded, apparently, uh, in the planet. So I'm talking about 2023. And so that means that um, I think the problem, the challenge that people have is convincing people of two things. First of all, that yes, it's not happening right now, but it's happening slowly. And when it, when it starts unfolding, it's gonna just get worse and more challenging. So it's like the slow approach to the danger. And the other one is that most people say that, you know, I'm just one person. What am I going to do? You know, if I stop eating meat right now, it's not going to make a difference. And and uh, if I buy an electric car, it's not going to make a difference because I'm just a little, little person in this giant 8 billion people world controlled by corporations and governments. So my actions are useless. And And the point is that that is only true to a certain degree because um, what you do is a statement of who you are and what you believe in, 
right? And the way you position yourself in the world really is a mirror of your attitudes and your value system. And so if you are a person that is bothered by global warming, by the fact that the big oil companies are polluting the, the world because we need the fuel and that's the only way mostly that we can use it, you can do something about it, not so much to stop global warming by yourself, but to make a statement. And and my I'm an optimist. That's why when you talked about doom, you know, I'm like, I'm an optimist. And I think that the the alternative, you know, to be a pessimist is a total disaster, right? Because, you know, I grew up in Brazil and you know, as you know, Brazil, we love soccer. And so I'm using a soccer metaphor, which is this, right? So if you are a pessimist, you're the kind of guy that is gonna go to a game and even before the ball is kicked for the first time, you sit down on the ground and say, oh, there's no way I can win this game. I'm giving up, you know. And and what kind of game is that, right? What kind of life is that? So you have to try to make a difference and make a statement because you will influence people around you. And I think that I'm a believer in the chain reaction of social forces. And so that as more and more people engage with this way of thinking about preservation, sustainability, the more difference, you know, we are going to feel in a society as a whole. It's a, it's a big, big challenge, but I think it's possible. In the book, you propose a transformation of the collective mindset, particularly the adoption of a post-Copernican worldview. Can you, can you walk us through this, beginning with just a reminder of who Nicholas Copernicus was and how he helped transform an established worldview? Absolutely. So this is a very long story. This is sort of the core uh, kind of aspect of the whole book. And the idea is this, that uh, even before Copernicus, like starting really from the beginning. If you think about our species, right? So we are Homo sapiens, and we've been here in, on this planet for about 300,000 years. Just to give perspective to people, if you look at the history of the world, right? The planet Earth, right? Planet Earth has been around for four and a half billion years. So if you take 300,000 of four and a half billion years, you're talking, and if you take four and a half billion years and compress it into 24 hours in one day, right? We basically arrived a few seconds before midnight. So we are the newcomers on the planet, right? That's for sure. But on the other hand, we have changed the planet dramatically. And it's not 300,000 years of Homo sapiens that did it, it's about 10,000 years of agrarian and industrial civilization that did it. So in about 10,000 years, we changed everything. So if we look at our history, sort of like in what we call deep time, right? So we start from the beginning. For most of the time that we existed in this planet, we were organized socially in a completely different way. We were what we call hunter-gatherers, right? So people organized themselves into small bands. They all helped one another. The idea that we're savage cavemen is kind of silly and it's old-fashioned. You know, all the anthropology studies now mention that actually those bands of hunter-gatherers, they stuck together, but they also collaborated, interbred, you know, with each other. And they had a relationship to the planet, and this is the essential point, which is very, very different from the one we have now. And nowadays, the only cultures that still relate to the planet in a similar way are the indigenous cultures. And what do they say? They say the planet is sacred, right? That the, the mountains, the rivers, the forests, the animals, everyone is interconnected in a very fundamental way. And you have to respect this chain of being, because if you don't, you're going to pay a very high price. So there was this notion of everything had an enchanted kind of reality about it. There were spirits everywhere. The ancestors were there too. And there was really no separation between the reality that we see with our eyes right now and this kind of fantastic other world of spirits and, and forces beyond their control. So that was a way of dealing with the planet, which was, in a sense, deeply respectful, right? So with agrarian civilization, many wonderful things happened. For example, we started to plant and we could feed more people. And of course of that, uh, the population started to grow and we started to con condense more and more into small areas, which became city-states. And 
you know, the, the expect life expectancy didn't grow much for that because once you start putting a lot of people together, there are all sorts of issues like sewage and diseases. And so for most of the history of, of our species, the life expectancy was between 30 and 40 years old. This is including Victorian England in the 19th century. We never lived very long. But the point, back to your question, is that what changed with the agrarian civilization was the notion that now we can control the planet. We can control nature. Look, we are planting, we are making things grow, we can domesticate animals. And more and more, we felt like we are the owners of the place, right? And it is no coincidence when you look at monotheistic religions, which came at about the same time, you know, Judaism and then Christianity, they all talk about us as being above the world. You know, God created the land to serve you. You take ownership of the animals, etc. That's in Genesis, in the Bible, right? To say, all right, this is our place. This is our world. We control it. And we are above nature. And this notion, you know, that we are above nature kind of pervaded all of what happened in the last 2,000 years. That we are going to be creating technologies that we can use to basically um, uh, protect us from the forces of the world, right? So we build our homes, we warm them up, we create uh, clothes that are warm, we eat and, and cook our food, etc. So we try to really uh, control the forces of nature. But then comes a storm, or there comes a volcanic eruption, or, or an earthquake, or a tidal wave, and to teach us that, you know what, folks, it's not that simple, right? We are not really above nature. We are really very much part of the natural world, right? But we kept on going and became very successful developing technologies. And this is our story, right? We are a species that tells stories about who we are and the place we have been. Now, back to Copernicus. So Copernicus showed up in the early 1500s, and in 1543, he wrote a book, he published a book, which is sort of like the big book of his life, okay? And the book was called On the Revolution of the Celestial Spheres. And what the story was with that book is that up to his time, everyone believed that the earth was the center of the universe, that there was the earth in the middle, and then you had the moon, and you had Mercury and Venus around it, and the sun, and all the other planets up to Saturn, because that's all they could see in the 1500s. Uh, everything revolved around us. And so the Earth was the center of everything. And of course, we, according to religion, were created in the image of God. So we were like, you know, even though we were being kicked out of paradise, we were sort of the God emissaries in this planet, right? And so we had this value system where we were the best, right? Our planet was the center. When Copernicus comes in, he basically changes the story and he says, sorry, folks, it turns out that from what we can say from astronomy, that is not the story. The story is that the sun really is the center of our solar system. And the Earth is just a planet, just like Mercury and Venus and Jupiter, which means that it just goes around the sun. And at that point, something very profound happens because if Earth is just a planet like any other planet, it does not have the value that people believed it had. So all of the philosophy and the cosmology, you know, the way we thought about the universe at the time was based on the Aristotelians. So Aristotle, this Greek philosopher, about 300 years BCE, built a whole system, a whole worldview, you know, based on the fact that the earth is the center, everything falls to it, everything changes here, but the heavens, the planets, and the moon, and the stars, they're all eternal and changing. So the earth was the place where as everything was changing, the skies were eternal. There was some hierarchy that was vertical, you know, from the center of the earth changing to all the way up to the sky. And the Catholic Church bought that and said, that is exactly how the world should be if God created it. And God is not on earth anymore like he was for our ancestors. God is way up there in the skies 
and it's a very abstract idea, you know. The more the idea of a monotheistic God advanced in time, the more uh, remote God became. You know, in the Old Testament, it was around a lot, you know, it was like burning bush with Moses and, and doing all sorts of other things. And then in the Christian times, you know, it became sort of like this idea in disguise. He sent a son, you know, but, and so the point is that as religion left the planet, the planet became an object, became not sacred anymore, a place where you could exploit as you wanted. And that attached to the notion from astronomy, from Copernicus, hey, the earth is just a planet, meant that the combination of the science of the time and this religion of the time meant that, yes, you can do to the planet whatever we want. It's just another world. It's not that important. If there is life here, there'll be life in other planets too. That was so in this it's really cool actually if you look at the 1600s and 1700s all these guys like very famous scientists were speculating about life in other worlds like you know like is it going to be just like here or not and if it's just like humans would they be sinners and if there is a sinner there will you need another jesus you know and are there many jesuses in all these different planets to save people it was like this wild conversation about this other life and the end result of this, right, as the centuries advanced, is that the earth was objectified and became a place where you could do as we wanted to. And so that's the impact of the Copernican idea, which was not really his. I mean, all he said is that, look, the earth is a planet, but the whole, everything else that followed. And this has been the narrative of modern astronomy and cosmology, which is what I do for a living, you know, as a researcher, which is essentially this, you know, and you must have heard this before. It's like, man, these are scientists keep telling us that the more we know about the universe, the less important we become. You know, if the earth is just a planet and then the sun was the center of everything, but then sorry folks, no, the sun is just a star. And this star, they're, they're in this galaxy, in the Milky Way where we live, there are about 200 billion stars, you know, and the sun, the kind of star that the sun belongs to, which is a, it's called a G star, is only about 3% of all the stars. And, and then the galaxy that we thought, uh, until 100 years ago, everybody thought the Milky Way was the only galaxy in the universe. And then this American astronomer called Hubble said, nope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies out there. And these galaxies, furthermore, are moving away from one another. The universe is expanding. And so, like, we're really becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And then, to top it all, in the last 40 years or so, we discovered that the matter that we're made of, the atoms in your body, are just about 5% of the stuff that fills up the universe. So, all the stars and the planets and the gas clouds and the people... All this stuff is only about 5% of what's out there. So now even the stuff we are made of is important, right? And then to, 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 to finish the whole thing, right, the last nail on the coffin, in the last, what, 20 years or so, even our universe may not be the only universe. That may be part of what's called a multiverse, which is like a bubbling soup of different universes, and each universe has a different set of properties. And so the, the narrative that I'm trying to build here is that we went from a species that thought of this world as their mother, as the sole responsible for our existence, to a species where the development of industrial technologies and, and this way of looking at the universe as this very, very big place, which is all true scientifically, you know, took the value of our planet and objectified it. And it created this mindset where we don't have to worry about the world. That's the story, you know, that comes into this book. And then the point is, okay, now that story needs to change. Because if we keep telling this story to ourselves, we are not going to be here telling the story for much longer. So the question is, how can we build a different argument to explain who we are? Now, some might, you know, criticize this notion as something radical that could never captivate the mainstream. But, but you rightfully point out that the major shifts in worldview and cultural narrative occur throughout human history. So it's, it's not an unreasonable hope, right? 
I, I hope not. You know, for example, the shift to Copernicanism, the shift from an Earth-centered cosmos to a Sun-centered cosmos was like profoundly changing, right? I mean, there was the whole issue with Galileo and the Inquisition because he was, you know, about 100 years, not quite 80 years after, after Copernicus, he was saying, folks, Copernicus is right, you know, and if you keep insisting that the Earth is the center, you're going to embarrass yourselves, you know, and only in the 1980s, the church uh, forgave Galileo, you know, and so changes of mindset, they do happen, right? When there is enough evidence for them to happen, either moved by fear or moved by scientific evidence. You don't have to believe because science is exactly what tells you, you don't need to believe in this. You need to look at the data, interpret it properly and understand what's going on. Right. So where does the fun new story comes in? Right. The story that comes in is that you can rescue this notion of belonging to the natural world that ancient cultures have had for a long time and couch it in a scientific narrative. And that's what I tried to do in this book. Right. And how do you do that? Well, first of all, there is the story that everybody knows already that we are made of stardust, right? You know, so you have Johnny Mitchell and you have Carl Sagan, all of us saying these things and people have to internalize that this is really true, right? And I love to talk about this because it is so beautiful. You know, it's, it's kind of at the same time lyrical and scientifically accurate that, you know, the, the, the iron in your blood and the calcium in your bones and the carbon in your cells all of these chemical elements, they all came from stars that blew up over 5 billion years ago. So if you stop to think about this for a second, so what? You know, so because the, the stars are what are the great alchemists. So what a star does essentially is that it grabs hydrogen. A star is a giant ball of flaming hydrogen. Hydrogen, if you guys don't remember, is the simplest chemical element that exists in nature, it has one proton and one electron in the, one proton in the nucleus and one electron moving about it. So that is the simplest thing that exists, chemically speaking. And what a star does, it grabs hydrogen, pushes it together, compresses it really hard, and this compression transforms hydrogen in all the other chemical elements that exist. That's called nuclear fusion. So a star, is essentially a giant nuclear fusion device that transforms hydrogen into helium, carbon, oxygen, all the way to iron. And then when it gets to iron, big stars tend to explode in what we call supernova explosions. And when that happens, the heavier elements all the way to uranium are forged in different ways. So, and then when the stars explode, they spell all that stuff out into, the, into interstellar space. And all these gas clouds filled with all these chemical elements travel around, hit other floating clouds of hydrogen, sprinkle them with the heavy chemical elements. And when this star is born and the planets are born, they carry with them all the chemistry that will become part of life. So that's who we are, you know? So the stardust story is really true. So that's connecting us to the history of the universe as a whole, right? So we connect ourselves to billions and billions of years of cosmic history. So that's one point. There's this uh, Buddhist monk that I like a lot called Thich Nhat Hanh, who talked about this thing called interbeing. The notion of interbeing is really cool. He says, you know, pick up a book and read a poem. And you look at that page in that book and you say, wow, this page is made of paper. So that means that as I'm reading this book and I'm looking at this page of paper, there is a cloud that made this paper possible, you know, because this paper is made of wood. Wood is tree. Tree needs water. Water comes from rain. Rain comes from clouds. And the planet made that happen. But it only made that happen because there is a sun giving it energy to make it happen and to drive its climate. And so you're already connected to the sun. So when you're reading a page of a book, you're really already connected to the sun. But the sun, of course, is a star that belongs to a galaxy, that belongs to the universe. So in this page of paper that you're reading, 
you have the whole history of the universe. And that's the notion of interbeing. So this vision that this guy had, it really is completely supported by scientific research. So that's all good. Now comes the second part. That's where it becomes a little provocative from my end, which is this. In the last 15 or 20 years, this new branch of astronomy called uh, astrobiology came out. And what is astrobiology? Astrobiology is essentially the study of life in the universe, right? So now it's kind of awesome. You can actually get grants from NASA and, and National Science Foundation to study aliens or the possibility of alien life in the universe. You know, 20 years ago, that was not possible at all. And what we have been doing with the Hubble Space Telescope and now with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is this spectacular machine that allows us to look at planets going around other stars to search for chemical elements. Look at this, chemical elements in their atmospheres to see if the atmospheres tell us about life in that world or not. So to make this a little more concrete, if an alien astronomer looked at Earth from far away, from like 10 light years away, he would say, oh, look at that blue planet over there. It has a very thick atmosphere. It has water. It has carbon dioxide. It has methane. It has ozone. That planet is alive just because of the combinations of possible chemicals in the atmosphere. So to find life, elsewhere. You don't really need to take a spaceship and go interstellar, which would be awesome, but it's not possible yet. But you can look at those planets, study their atmospheres, study the chemical composition of the atmosphere and say, yep, it really indicates the presence of biological activity there. So we're doing that now. And we have found so far over 5,500 exoplanets, we call them. That is planets rotating, orbiting around other stars far away. And we have been able to study the atmospheres of a small amount of them, but we have also found what kind of planet is that? Is it like an Earth-like, like rocky, solid guy? Or is it more like Jupiter, which is this big, giant, puffy ball of gas? And what we have found out is that the vast majority of, of worlds have nothing to do with Earth, are much more like Jupiter or Neptune, so big gas planets, only about 3% of the planets that we have found so far have a similar look to Earth, but of those, very few of them orbit a star like the Sun. Some of them orbit stars which are much colder. Most of them, in fact, orbit, orbit stars which are much colder. And so as you start looking at this, in more detail, you realize that even from an astronomical perspective, even though there are trillions, and I'm not joking, trillion is one trillion is a one with 12 zeros. There are trillions of planets in our galaxy alone, okay? But very few are going to be similar to this planet. So what we're beginning to learn is that despite you have this gigantic diversity of worlds out there, which is really spectacular, and they are all magically amazing, right? I mean, you have moons in our solar system, not just the planets, you have the moons too, like Enceladus and Europa, which is this moon of Jupiter that has an icy crust. And underneath the icy crust, there's a, an ocean of salt water that carries four times more water than all the oceans of our planet together. So like, damn, you know, if there's that, then maybe Hey, salt water, right? There may be life there. So there'll be their planned missions that will go there, hopefully at some point, land, drill a hole, try to get some of that water to analyze, see if there are any little creatures out there. But even if there are, they're not going to be as complex as life here. See, the thing about Earth is not that it's just a living planet as a whole, but it's a living planet with very complex life. And that makes all the difference. So Avatar, you know, that's, that, that movie was made for a very good reason, you know, which is there'll be very few planets like or similar. To, there will let me be even more, more bombastic here. I can tell you this. There will never be another Earth in the whole of the universe. You can have planets similar 
to Earth, maybe. And even if they have life, life on those planets, even if it's kind of like our life, like carbon-based, water-based, that life is going to be completely different from life here. Which means, which I think is really cool, and it's part of the fundamental soul of the book, that we are the only humans in the universe. There'll be no other humans. There could be other humanoid-like things with like a left-right symmetry, like you have, you know, left-right eye and stuff. But there'll be no other human species in the whole of the universe. And that puts us back in the center of the universe, but in a completely different way from before Copernicus. Because now we become the species that is self-aware and is able to tell its own story. And the biggest story that we tell is the story of how we belong to the universe as a whole. So we are, in a sense, telling the story of the universe. We are the voice and the mind of the universe telling its own story. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And so is, is this, this, this basic idea, this, this idea of the, the earth as this precious gem and it being you know, vitally connected with us, it, it, this gets into this idea of the secular sacredness of the planet, correct? Exactly. So, in this, uh, so I propose this thing called biocentrism, which is not a word I invented. Other people have used it, but I used it in a somewhat different context. I think the context that I use is similar to the people that were doing this um, ecological theology, I guess, in the 70s and 80s, you know, they said, you know, religion abandoned the world and we need to go back to that. And what I'm saying is that, yes, religion abandoned the world. So did science, because, you know, science also sort of like took the world as a big laboratory 
without really respecting it for what it is. And now we have this new science coming out and we can bring this notion of what I would call a secular spirituality. The idea that you can relate to the world. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. This has nothing to do directly with God. If you do, that's great. Bring God back to the planet. But if you don't, you can relate to the awesomeness of being part of this deep connection to the history of the universe in this planet that allows us to be able to tell this story, right? It's not just that we exist here, but this planet has had even though it has had wild climate changes, you know, there was, this planet has been an ice ball completely. It has been a tropical forest. You know, it has gone through all these different phases in these four billion years of existence, but it always allowed a certain amount of stability in the climate for life to persist, right? And life has been around here. So I told you that the planet's four and a half billion years old. Life has been around for three and a half billion years in here. And it became incredibly complex. And once you start to look at nature with these eyes, you know, with the eyes of awesomeness, like be grateful for what you have because this is a jam. Look at, look what happens to us when we try to get out of the atmosphere, right? The, the universe is profoundly hostile to life. When I read things like life is ubiquitous in the universe, that the universe is filled with life, I'm like, I find that almost offensive because first of all, we have zero evidence of that. Okay, so there's zero evidence that we have been certainly visited by aliens, right? There's it's another whole conversation. Yeah. We have lots of friends writing books about that. Um, but, um, but more than that, we have zero evidence that there is life in other places, which doesn't mean there isn't. See, this is where you have to be very careful with scientific statements. We cannot prove that there is no life in other worlds. That's impossible. I'll tell you why. It's because we simply cannot go and visit every other world in the universe to find out if there is life there or not. So we may say life is rare, or life in our bubble, like cosmic bubble, like within a big distance from our planet here is rare, but we cannot rule it out. But what we can rule it out, as I said before, is that definitely there'll be no other human species in the universe. And even if there, there would be, they'll be so far away and so remote that for all purposes, all practical purposes, we really are alone telling our own story of what's going on. Now, you talk about this a little bit in the book. Uh, I was wondering if you might um, uh, feel this question. Do you, you believe that various sci-fi, futurist, and transhumanist ideas, such as the digitization of consciousness and, and even things like interplanetary colonization, no matter how far-fetched some of the concepts may be or you know, just outside of immediate grasp, have they played a negative role in moving sort of the public imagination away from more life-centric and earth-centric worldviews? I think absolutely yes, because, you know, just it's a matter of focus, right? You say, look, we are going to mess this planet up and we're just going to move somewhere else. So it doesn't matter. You know, let's just keep doing it. Let's just keep eating it up. And we're just basically eating its entrails, right? That's what... Uh, fossil fuels, they come from underground, right? So we're sort of feeding from the entrails of the planet to sustain this big civilization on the surface. And hey, if there are other worlds out there for us to colonize, just like we did here. So this whole notion of colonizing other planets is a repetition of what we have done to this planet. If you think about this, right? I mean, what happened here is that there were... Uh, native populations around the planet, but then you had the Europeans that had the technology to explore and go across vast distances and in the oceans, and that's what they did, and they moved on to these other places, and what did they do? They plundered, right? I mean, I grew up in Brazil. Brazil was a colony of Portugal that in the 1500s was the most powerful country or you know, kingdom in that case in the world, and they, you know, you look at all the gold in the, in the churches in Europe and cathedrals, where did that come from? Well, a lot of it came from South America, right? And so 
are we going to just repeat that model as we move on? So let's go to the moon and let's go mine the moon. And then we make a base on the moon and then we colonize or we terraform Mars, which basically means we make Mars into an Earth thing, which is completely ridiculous. It, it just doesn't work and it will not work. You can make an igloo-like <laughs> life, a biosphere kind of thing in another world and, and recreate the Earth conditions in that world locally. But at a global level, that is so far away, as you said, so far-fetched that it is, at this point, given the problems that we have in this planet right now, we should be focusing everything that we've got here and not in, can I go to Mars and, you know, colonize Mars or whatever. So that's the planetary aspect of things. And then um, the other one, the transhumanist idea that we can... And I write a lot about that, not in this book so much, but in other places, um, that we can actually create some sort of scientific-based immortality, right? Is a very, very old idea, right? I mean, at least you can go back to Frankenstein. So, you know, 1819, uh, where Mary Shelley, she used the cutting-edge science of her time, which was look, electricity can make muscles twitch, right? That was like Galvani, you know, and Volta had discovered this stuff in Italy and people were like amazed by this, right? They were like, wow. So basically the secret of motion is electricity going through your nerves and your muscles. So that means that if you could recreate a dead person and pass electricity to that person, science would conquer death, right? Transhumanism is exactly the same notion, but now using our cutting-edge technology, which is digital technology. So the, sense, the essence being, if we could capture the essence of who you are, right? So essentially look into your brain and you somehow can download your memories and the circuitry in your brain, and you can recreate all of that complexity in a, it's called a connectome. You know, how all the synapses of your neurons connect to one another. It's like a map, right? So this will be the map to yourself, right? And each one of us, even though we have brains which are very similar, they're also very different because I'm not Rob and Rob is not me, even though we share so much of what we are, right? There is a difference there. So the idea is if you could capture the essence and create a giant simulation, then that simulation will be you or an approximation of you. And I find that very disturbing and also very kind of like uh, <laughs> far-fetched is not even a word uh, for this because we have zero idea of what it means to capture ourselves, you know, the essence of who we are from a digital perspective or any kind of perspective, because we don't know what consciousness is or how it works. But as you said, the way you phrase the question, which is very clever, is like those things, even though they are very far-fetched, can they be taking us away from our task right now, which is to really celebrate the life that we have and the planet that gives us the possibility of having this life, as opposed to spending so much energy and fantasy and money and resources in dreaming up a future which is not going to help us in the next few decades, which is when we really need the help. And the answer is absolutely. That's what we should be focusing on. The hope of this book is to help people maybe refocus a little bit on the beauty and the tremendous miracle in a sense that life in this planet really is and what a place that we have that we should be thinking about it very differently than we are. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like 
feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Now, part of the the hopefulness of the book is that it's not just big ideas. You also discuss concrete steps that individuals and society can take. So what can we do? What can listeners to the show do to help adopt these principles and drive positive change as individuals? Right. So so the subtitle of the book is A Manifesto for Humanity's Future, right? So a manifesto is kind of like a little bit of a pretentious thing to say. There are lots of people writing manifestos about this or that, but... So what I did is I went back to something I read when I was a teenager, which was a communist manifesto by Marx and Engels. You know, I said to say, okay, what the heck is a manifesto and how do you write one, right? And so basically the a manifesto has two parts, right? It has, this is the argument of why the world needs to change, right? So you bring that argument forward and you say, look, in their case was about capitalism and the bourgeoisie and we need to you know, save the workers, etc. So that was their story. Our story is we are making our planet sick and we cannot be healthy as humans in a sick planet. So we have to change the way we relate to the planet. It's that simple, right? I mean, it's a little more sophisticated than that in the book, but, but the bare bones is this, you know, a, a sick planet cannot support a healthy life any kind of life, human or otherwise. So then the second part of the manifesto is, okay, what do you do about this? What are the action items, right? And in their case was, you know, workers of the world unite and, you know, let's throw out the kings and all that. And that's what happened with the Tsar in Russia. But in our case is about what can we do as individuals and as a society in order to actually start really making a difference, right? And I suggest several different things, okay? So at the individual level, and not just at the individual, I also, at the corporate level, is, is the notion of, I call it the doctrine of less. Less what? Well, you don't need to become vegan overnight because, you know, that doesn't work. But if you cut your meat consumption in half, if everybody cut the meat consumption in half, a 50% solution, you will make a tremendous impact on the amount of not just the methane and the carbon dioxide, but the water pollution and soil pollution, the cattle grazing 
and cutting the forest to have area for the cattle to graze would make. Okay, so the notion that it is possible to make personal choices, that's the, that's the real challenge. There are personal choices that you can make that may not be ideal for you, that may involve a certain level of self-sacrifice that will impact people. And some people are like, man, I don't care. You know, I don't want to do that. Well, if we don't care, we're going to pay a price. Like if we didn't care about the Japanese invasion of the Nazis in Europe, we would have lost Second World War and the world would have been a very, very different place right now. So we care and when we care, we make change happen, right? The Manhattan Project is a great example of that. You know, if people watched Oppenheimer, they know what I'm talking about. That was an incredibly difficult technical challenge, very expensive, but you put a, a bunch of great minds together and give them the resources and we can solve problems to a certain point. I'm gonna to get to that in a second. So less meat, less energy, less water, less garbage. These are the four lessons that we can all work on together. Shorter showers, more composting, etc. So all these things can be done. And then there is the doctrine of the more. More what? More engaging with the natural world. What does that mean? It means go out and look at nature once in a while. Look up at the sky. If you live in the city, find a darker corner, go to a park, look at the park, pay attention to what's going on, walk by the ocean front, you know, engage with the natural world. Because as I was saying earlier, you know, for most of our existence, we were beings in the natural world. That's what we evolved for. That's why we sweat and we run distances, you know. I'm a long distance runner. I love that. And because that connects me with really the essence of what we evolved here for. We were like hunting antelopes and gazelles, you know, 200,000 years ago. And we got them, even though they're much faster than we are, because we could do this for a long time. So we have all those senses of very good vision, very good resistance, and ways of moving, which are designed to be in the world. But what we have done since agrarian civilization is we created cities which are the anti-nature. Think about that, right? A city is a ball of concrete surrounded by nature on all sides. And the idea is that we can engage in, with nature much more. And once we do that, you feel better about yourself. Even if it's just a walk in the park, you know, people have been talking about forest bathing and all these things. Just, just walk and look at the trees, you know, and the clouds in the sky and stuff like that. It has measured physiological benefits. You know, lots of studies, a few of them at Stanford have already demonstrated that we feel better when we engage with the world. So that's the more connection to the world, more respect for animal life, right? Because that story I was telling in the beginning where I said, we have basically deemed ourselves the owners of the planets and we can do to animals everything like we can kill them, we can eat them, or we can have them as pets, which is, you know, think of this, this, it's kind of uncomfortable to say this, but I'm going to say it because why not? Look at the cognitive dissonance here. We love our pets. We love our dogs and our cats and our bunny rabbits or even our fish, you know, but then we go out and we eat a calf. How does that work exactly? And you go visit the farm and you go, oh, look how cute, you know, like when you have little kids, you go and you go, look at the beautiful cow and, the, and then we go eat them. So what is going on here? You know, and you love your dog like yourself, like your dog dies, you're like in the deep depression. It's just an animal. I love my dog deeply. He's just the best dog in the world. But so what is going on here? How do we get to be that way? You know, so, and that's an uncomfortable conversation, you know, they're like, look, there's a story that can be told from the farm to the chunk of meat in a supermarket, but it's so far removed that we just go to the market and we buy that and we, we just, you know, we don't care, but we should be caring more. That's the point, you know, it's because we didn't care for thousands of years that we are in a difficult situation now. So it's a hard conversation to have. But 
the more engagement with the natural world is essential. And the other thing I suggest is two more things, just because, you know, otherwise I could talk for too long. One is the notion of um, education. Every school at any level from elementary school to PhD level should tell the story of who we are in the universe. This whole conversation that we had about where we come from, from stars, how we evolved in this planet, how connected we are to all forms of life and to this world in particular. This is a story that should be told at all levels, you know, and we hardly ever talk about this. And that's why we don't know who we are. That's why we think we are the owners of the place because we forgot to tell this story, which is the most important story. And finally, as a consumer, you have choices too. You know, if you think that that certain corporation does not align with your ethical values about the environment and about how they treat animals, don't buy from that business. Buy from another business. And that has more power and more pressure than you think. Consumers have power when they unite and boycott a certain company because they don't align with their values, you know. And so there's this being an optimist, I have to say, there is this thing called B corporations now, which are corporations that have a, an ethos, have a way of dealing with the world, which is much more in line with sustainability and circular economics, etc. And so this is happening already. And I have tremendous faith that all this work is going to kind of crystallize into a different way of thinking about who we are in the next decade or so. And you also point out that there is a responsibility for the scientific community as well, correct? There is because, and that's the hard one, because as a scientist, I know um, how my peers think. And, and the scientific community should be telling the story, I believe, <laughs> as it is, which is not like, oh, there are lots of Earth-like, you know, people talk about other Earths out there. No, there are no other Earths out there. There may be Earth analogs, but there's only one Earth. So it's just a way of telling the story. As you know, the way you tell a story makes a huge difference. You could be telling the same story and completely change the meaning of that story. And so I think we should be very careful about telling the story of our planet and our species in this planet in a much more environmentally aware way. And with this notion, and you know, when you use the word sacred, you know, most scientists cringe, right? Because they associate that with other kinds of sacred, you no? Know? But I'm talking about the sacredness of life, that that perhaps is the most fundamental universal moral value, which is life is sacred, right? And our life of another human, but other life forms too. And so if you relate to that in a more concrete way, not just as you're just saying that, as a scientist, you have a role to play. You are a role model for this way of thinking about the world because you are the one bringing all this information to the public, right? So the people that are writing books about science should be thinking a little more carefully about what are they saying of the power of science? Can science, for example, solve all the problems? I promised I was going to go back to that, and I can go back to that right now. And the answer is absolutely not. You know, science, not all problems have a scientific solution. You know, some problems have a complicated solution that also uses science, but it uses philosophy, it uses um, anthropology, anthropological ways of thinking about who we are in a culture. And native ways of thinking about who we are and how we relate to certain values. So I would believe that now we are at this point where the science that we are using to describe the planet, you know, it's called systems science, is telling us a story that we have to bring together different ways of knowing in order to tell people what really matters in, in this world, not just we are going to sequester carbon with our machines and that's going to solve our problems. Well, we will not because guess what? Science historically, and that's a hard thing to say, but it's true. Historically, science always has served those in power because science needs money to operate and this alliance between science and state and science and industry is what has pushed science forward. So unless 
you have an industry that has a certain way of thinking about the world or powers in state that have a certain way of thinking about the world. The science that is going to be mostly funded is not going to be the science that is going to bring us out of our mindset unless we have a different mindset, which is what I'm proposing. So again, it falls it falls to us, it falls to society to really be the, the major uh, movement here. It falls to society, it falls to families, communities, schools, you know, it, it's a grassroots thing. You know, it, it goes from every, in my opinion, and of course, you know, is that every family should be sitting down together and talking about this problem. Because if you have kids, hey, this is the world they're going to be living in, you know, uh, and and it's our responsibility to to kind of make them aware of what's going on and 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 what the possible choices we have for a future that is going to be a great future, not just a horrible dystopic future, which is what so many people are talking about, right? I mean, it's you talk about doom scrolling for a reason. Lots of public intellectuals are talking about a world with a horrible future ahead, right? Like digital doom and, you know, you, you, you name it, like nanotechnology taking over, you know, like nanobots and all sorts of existential risks. And very few people are talking about, okay, these are the risks. What are the solutions? How can we revert that? And that's a much harder job because it's so easy to point fingers and say, this is happening, so this is going to happen. But what about, what can we do even though it costs, that's the thing. You know, every choice we make has a, involves a little level of self-sacrifice because you cannot leave the other choice. So you're always losing something when you make a choice. But some choices are for the common good. And it's time for us to be thinking about us and this planet in terms of the common good, ours and everybody else's in it. Marcelo, thank you so much for writing such a, an inspirational book and for coming on the show to discuss it. Uh, I, I recommend it to all our listeners. It's a great read. It's a very consumable read. Like you just end up reading uh, the entire book in a single session. Um, and I think it's a great read to kick off the new year, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. 2024, folks. You know, this is the year where if things don't change radically, you know, we are going to be paying more and more of a price every year. And we don't want that. We want a better place. We don't want a worse place. So let's wake up and, and, and work together to make this happen. Well said. Uh, where can our listeners follow you and learn more about your work? Oh, I, um, I'm all over social media. You know, there is a MarcelloGleiser.com. I am on X and, and Instagram. And I have a ton of followers on YouTube and, and so and also LinkedIn because I'm starting a new think tank uh, in Tuscany, actually, which is precisely to help corporate leaders rethink about their roles in the world. You know, so I'm thinking that one way we could affect change is by going straight to the power source and, and making them see other ways of thinking about the world and then implement them in their business. So in a sense, even though I don't like trickle-down economics, this would be a trickle-down worldview change. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do. So I'm all over. Just look for my name and you'll find me. Excellent. And we'll have our social media uh, accounts uh, tag you where we can as well. Awesome, Rob. Thank you so much for your time and for the invitation. Thank you for chatting with us. Thanks again to Marcelo Gleiser for taking time out of his holiday to chat with me here. The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, a Manifesto for Humanity's Future is out now. Grab a copy. I highly recommend it. A reminder to everyone out there that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, though on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Also a reminder to everyone to please rate and review the show wherever you have the power to do so. And hey, if you listen to us on an Apple device, maybe check in and make sure that you're still subscribed and receiving downloads. It helps us out. Thanks as always to the excellent JJ Posway for producing the show. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 